Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavanagh. I'm here today with my friend and colleague Michael Dwyer today on TRSI. I think I said today twice in that one, but it's good enough. We'll press on. Well, it's still today. It's still today. It is the 26th of the 7th, still 2020. Nearly seven months through it, though. Mm. And it is, of course, a glorious Sunday. We are in the middle, past the middle of this year when... I saw somebody recently saying they long for the days when we can live in precedented times. Um, I think we can all have sympathy for that. I think, you know, given the, the current terrible situation everyone seems to be in, we need news that will uplift us, Michael. We do. You'll hear and you immediately, you joyfully laugh. Yeah. And so I, I was looking through the journal earlier today and I came across this this headline, Michael, and it, it filled me with pure joy. The joy of a child. Go on. Laughing, laughing at just life. And it's this. It says, when will we ever learn to value our culture in this country properly? Dancing with the stars, producer, hits out at government. <laughs> and it's about the executive producer of Dancing with the Stars attacking the government for their failure to support... Irish culture. That is brilliant. I mean, As he tries to shill his company to both RTE and the BBC. It's... I, I, I just... I think it's wonderful because you, you, the, the intro, you're thinking, what is this going to be? Some... Does a museum need help? Have the operas closed? Is the dead museum fire? Is it some kind of ghastly outreach for urban slam poetry festivals to be funded better or something but no it's a celebration of irish culture the samba of course the tango the waltz polka mazurka all ancient traditional irish cultural expression it's brilliant and of course the worship of the celebrity on television peg talks about it all the time but he says, he says the, the executive producer says, the financial and mental welfare of tens of thousands of creative professionals may flood our health and welfare state more than any virus could if no action is taken. When will we ever learn to value our culture in this country properly? Which seem like, it just seems like two very different things. Tens of thousands of what? Uh, creative professionals. There are tens of thousands of creative professionals in Ireland. Wow. There might be tens of thousands of creative professionals on the dole. Oh, I didn't know we had that many. Uh, unfortunately, he seems to have run afoul of COVID-19 in that Orty doesn't think it's safe to go ahead with a production of the scale of Dancing with the Stars. But they hope to revisit the show in 2022. I'm asking, I don't know, but is... Um... What's it? City, something. Fair City. Is that still? Is that still going on? Is it safe to produce that? It was. I thought unsafe to produce that, even in the best of times. But they still seem to do it. I I don't see. I don't see what Orty has to do with culture anyway. I don't. I, I don't get that. No, nor do I see what tens of thousands of creative professionals who work for Orty have to do with culture. But I just, I deeply enjoy this. It legitimately made me so much happier. Not because of Dancing with the Stars. I don't care about Dancing with the Stars. But I admire the sheer hustle of that man. Yeah. To stand there and say, surely Irish culture must be protected. 
therefore Dancing with the Stars, which, if I'm not wrong, was a British show. There, it's it's hard. It would be hard to do some kind of cultural and uh, autopsy of the Dancing with the Stars and find any bit of it that you could consider it to be peculiarly or culturally Irish. I mean, Michael, if if Dancing with the Stars is a core component of Irish culture, like we should just close up shop. It's done. I haven't seen much of it. I have to pr- to admit. But I don't ever recall seeing the bits where they were doing a bit of step dancing or the walls of Limerick. But, you know, why not? They could... Uh... Actually, and then I saw... I, and this, this story is not worth talking about at all, even for humour. But it was another story on the journal, and it was a it was opinion piece called Government Needs to Give People of All Abilities a Chance on the Job Market. Which, I'm not sure how the government could do that, because it just doesn't make sense. But in it, it contained a picture of the author... Yeah, and it was it was titled uh, Craig Kelly promoting inclusion at a conference. But the photo of him is holding like a whiteboard or sorry, like a tiny blackboard staring very seriously ahead. And he's a long, young looking guy in a suit. And it just says on it, inclusion rocks. And I was like, God, advocacy is what a time to be alive. What a time to be alive. is right. And by the way, guy, you know perfectly well how the government could do this. By seizing, in the name of the proletariat, the means of production. You know, it's, Why does it always involve seizing the means of production? I, it's never been tried before. I think somebody should give it a go. And why not Ireland? I'm sure we do it well. I think, why not? So I, my, my morning read of the journal actually made me substantially happier. It was, it was a good time for all. Unfortunately, I then got to the Irish Times and the Independent, and that was... Well, it's just yet more proof that we need the journal to continue in existence. There is, There was something I saw, and it didn't annoy me. But you know when you, you read something and you go, that could only have been written one way, or by one class of people about the other, but could never be done in reverse? Yeah. There's an article in The Independent by uh, Kira O'Connor, and it's called This is the Summer of the Himbo. The Golden Age of Big, Dim, Lovely Boys. And it's a premium article, so you're sorry. paying for this. Oh, Don, sorry, could we, could, you, could, could we have that again? The Golden Age of what? Of Big, Dim, Lovely Boys. So that's not objectifying or diminishing or patronising in any way, shape now, or form. Now look. And also, Rome, even though it's built on seven hills, I don't recall it as being very hilly. In sort of big steep hills. Well, although there was quite a steep hill down to the Coliseum from where we lived. But other than that, it was quite manageable. So yes, I was reading this. I was reading the style section of the Independent when I saw this. Uh, so it was your own the fault. Voices section. Oh, it was entirely my own fault, Michael. I just saw a premium article, and then the headline. And I was like, I'll have a look at this. I I see where this is going. Maybe this is some sort of piss take. And it's not. It's a pretty straight thing about how um, we, uh, you know, it, it's just one. It, it is what it is. But it contains this line, which I, I found interesting. It's less about IQ than being straightforward, relaxed, perhaps pres- possessing of certain naive gullibility. It's less about beauty than that unique confident simplicity that some beautiful men who were beautiful children have about them. The world has been kind to them. They have not had to develop guile. They are excited, not jaded. I just sort of went, 
If you wrote that about a woman, if a man wrote that about a woman, well, yeah, I, 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 I'd observe first of all that, that you'd have to be a particular kind of man to write it about a woman in this day and age. But really, whatever you know, listen, who, who, who wrote this, Kira? Uh, Kira O'Connor. Kira O'Connor. No, I assume Kira spends a lot of her time hanging around rugby clubs, but Kira has it. She's a living to make. She had to write something, so she wrote this. You know, good luck, God bless. The, I mean, we all need money. We all need money. You know, pints of Heineken cost money, but an editor published this. That's what I find bizarre. You know, uh, what I was thinking when I saw it was, I wonder if I could convince the other editors of Gripped to let me rewrite it slightly to change the sexes and to publish it on Gripped. And if I did that, what would be the reaction of the Irish Independent to it? <laughs> Not warm. I don't think it would be warm, Michael. I I don't think they'd even realised I had effectively plagiarised it. There would be calls from my head. How, I mean... Also, I find anyone saying that, well, what I want in a partner is a, a certain naive gullibility to be a bit creepy and slightly rapey, frankly. Yeah, what I'm saying, I, 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 don't, I want them to be dumb but pretty. It's, it's not even that. Like, dumb doesn't have to be gullible. Dumb but also easygoing, basically pliable, capable of being manipulated and dominated by me. I mean, if that's what you're into, somebody that I can, somebody I can lie to, and they will never notice or care. You know, I suppose, and maybe this is the difference between being a, a privileged white man and 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 being a a woman. Uh, I don't care. I really, don't. if she wants, that's the kind of fella she wants. She wants to write that kind of article. I don't care. I mean, to be honest, I I don't care. That you wrote the article. Every writer wrote it. And if that's what you're into, that's what you're into. Yeah. Fair enough. It's the fact that it's a media organisation. I've no doubt the Independent, if you reverse the sexes... Yeah, they would never have published ...would it. not only refuse to publish it, but they would probably tell you never to contact them again. Yeah, it is It is a double standard. But, Gary, we live in this... I, I was saying to you earlier about something else. You... If you if you made that criticism, the response would immediately be, "Oh, that's just more what aboutery from the disenchanted right," and this has become a thing now that simply by labelling something what aboutery is like, "Okay, I've I've called upon, let's move on, nothing to see here, that's it, we've we've resolved that problem." Interestingly enough, one of the the most read articles in the style section right now, well, actually, the most read is is the. The Summer of the Himbo article. The second most read is called When Wearing a Sarong is So Wrong, Double Standards Rule by Calef Fitzpatrick. And it's about the double standards afforded to men and women when it comes to what they can wear. I take a certain amount of amusement in that. Now, it perhaps tells something about the style section, that that's from the 5th of June. You, you're... You're too young to remember it, I imagine, Gary, but the last time I remember sarongs being in the news was around 20 years ago when David Beckham wore a sarong. I'm slightly ashamed that I even remember that. 
But really, God, style section in the Indo seems to be, well, barrel, hello, meat bottom. Here's a scraper. That, oh, well, I, I just hope she got the 130 quid plus that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, look, you need to write so Kira O'Connor is a regular columnist for the uh, Irish Independent. You need to get that money. So I can understand why you would write it. Um, it is the most read, and I would be interested to see what the reaction of the public is to I, did, I do have one small curiosity. Uh, if Kira has a boyfriend or husband, I'd like to know, I'd like to meet him and see what... What he thought. Mm. Oh, actually, Michael, here's what we could do. We couldn't, if, if I were to get grip to republish it but change the sexes, I might lose my career because that would be seen as deeply offensive and just totally out of the pale. But what about this? We don't change the sexes and we just publish it under your name. Okay. Yeah. I don't know where that fits on the intersectionality bingo. Mm. But now I th- I have a feeling that now we're cooking with gas. You see that? No, I, I I gosh, I don't know. I think that might be homophobic, because it's speaking into a stereotype. There's a very well, within a certain community, a very famous film. I think it's called The Party, where one of the uh, characters is talking to a young man, and he says the young man is obviously not the the most scholastic of men, and he says something to him. And the older man says, he looks at him and says, you're not very bright, are you? I like that in a man. And this seems to be very much in that kind of space. I don't, I don't know, Gary. I, um, I suspect there will be a group of people out there who wouldn't be very happy with it, but that might be people that they'd be being on dates, but with me, but that's uh, not a very, Mm. Not a very large set. Um, I'm voting against that idea anyway. For th- Are you sure, though? I'm pretty sure. I think, Gary, you know, when it comes to being sued for libel or being stoned to death by the progressive mob, I'd really like you went first. I mean, I think that's what we all expected to happen, but I think there's an opportunity here, Michael. It's an opportunity I'm going to askew, Gary, and I think we should move on now. No sense of adventure or fun. None. So that was that was the, the that's the independent. The Irish Times had a very good one as well. Good for you know very particular reading of good because they also have Fintan O'Toole. So, but the Irish Times <laughs> did an article called a uh, "Toxic." Would these Irish ads persuade you to wear a face mask? Yeah, and it basically came out. The Irish Times basically wondered. If we were advertising for the wearing of face masks, how would we do it? And so the Irish Times went around to various ad people. And um, basically asked them to write up masks. And it reminded me fantastically of why advertisement is a dying art, because most of them are shit. Okay. One or two are, are okay. There's one which actually some of them are decent. There's one where they just took the str- the uh, Edward Munch's or Edvard Munch's the scream and just put a uh, mask over it and captioned it um, "Silence the screams, wear a mask." <laughs> I like that. That's quite good. 
over 1,700 people have died. That I like, I put that up in the National Gallery. A little bit of spot marketing. But there was one, and it's uh, by John Martin and Dave Kowser. And it's called Barefaced Lies. And it's a picture of Donald Trump. And the quote on it says, It's going to disappear. One day it's like a miracle it will disappear. Then it says Barefaced Lies. And then it says below it, masks save lives. Uh... And it's just tedious. Yeah, because that's really what you want to do. When you want to get a mass engagement, when you want to get 90% or more of your population engaged in activity, what you want to do is introduce an extremely polarising political agenda to your advertising. Absolutely. The... the... The politicisation of public health measures can only be a good thing, Michael. Absolutely. Because you'll make it an article of religion for 50% of the people to do it, and an article of faith of 50% of the people never ever to give in to do it. And I just, I, I, it's, been, it's been four years. I've, I've gotten tired of this reflective sort of before I say this thing, I've got to unthinkingly say orange man bad. It's, just, it's I'm like, I don't even like Donald Trump. And it pisses me off. That's what pisses you off the most, is it? People on, shall we say, conservative right in Ireland, many, many of them, have deep reservations to be mild about Mr. Trump and when he was running for the president. But, no, but they just push you into this thing where you feel like you're... Or you're perceived as being defending him. Also, it's just the tedium. Why? Okay, he's president of the United States, so he is a huge international figure. But we are up. The Irish media seem to be obsessed in the minutia. There was a story which ran big story on uh, on, on RT and the on the, on the radio where a Pat. Oh no, it wasn't RT. Sorry, it was Pat Kenny. I think did a big section on his show about. Senator Lindsey Graham, who is a big supporter of Donald Trump these days, and what it, the story was, going over what Lindsey Graham had said about Donald Trump when he was running for the nomination. So four years ago, this wouldn't even be a story in Washington now, because everybody knew, knows it. It's all on the record. Everybody heard it first. It, it, it's not even really political gossip because gossip that's four year old, four year four years old that everybody knows doesn't pass the test for gossip, it sure ain't news. And what the hell does it have to do with the people of Ireland? But they're bloody obsessed with constantly orange man bad people who voted for Donald Trump. Oh well, they're stupid, you know. And then they all laugh like this is some kind of terribly funny joke. Oh, lads, please. Move on. It's just reflexive, and it's not even well done because it's it's so politicized and so tribal that you, even when you're joking about it, you don't need to make a good joke because people who hate him will laugh, and it's just given rise to this incredibly lazy comedy about him, which isn't even good. It's like a compulsive tick. It's almost like it's somewhere between like. At times, I think almost like a Tourette's, where it's a compulsive spewing. In the case of somebody who has Tourette, they know that they're doing it and they're try desperately trying to control it. A lot of the time, I think they don't even realise they're doing it. It's just this boom comes out, 
and they go on. No, they 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 just a lot of them legitimately just you know that like it, it is unhinged. When you see the comedy thing, you know when you're watching an audience or you're you're, you're watching a show. And it's a comedy show, but most of the time people are not laughing, but they're applauding, really. You think, no, that's that's not what's supposed to be going on. If it was funny, they would laugh. And you know why? Because laughter is an involuntary reaction. It's reflexive. You laugh. Then sometimes you might feel guilty, because maybe you're laughing at something you shouldn't be laughing at. But you don't sit there smiling, but clapping wildly. That's just agreeing with some prick in this, with the microphone. Yeah, it's, it's, it's called clapter comedy. Where you don't laugh, you clap. And this is where you're saying this comedy doesn't need to be funny. And comedy as a way to push particular narratives. And it's just, it's very boring. The only actually good attempt at comedy I've seen from the mainstream American media about Donald Trump that I think has worked was Saturday Night Live's piss take of Sean Spicer. All right. Uh, with his little uh, mobile, like the, you know, his, the podium he spoke yeah. at? They put that on wheels, which drives around shouting at people. That's actually quite good, because it also come, it comes across as if they don't hate him. Whereas the attempts to do Trump, it just often seems as if you despise everything about the man, and therefore it's not really funny. If... You're, if you're a comedian, I would have thought that a good comedian, a good comic writer, would see in Donald and in his governance a rich vein, a, ri- a oh, yeah. lumps of ore and gold nuggets indeed of comedy, and yet they they may, they manage to miss it every because it's, they hate him, and it's very difficult to do comedy about someone you actually hate because. You focus less on things, on making things funny, and you focus more on scoring points on that person. I hadn't thought about that, but I think that's true, because when I think of, say, two anger comics, people like, say, Bill Hicks and the other one, who do, who's the other one I'm trying George Carlin. I've mm. always felt that Carlin and Hicks were at their weakest when they were talking about something that they genuinely hated. Absolutely, Hicks... Hicks can sometimes be amusing when he goes on a rant, but when it's a rant he feels strongly about, it just stops being yeah. comedy. He's literally just screaming at you about something. And to be honest, he's not a terribly deep thinker, so he can't really pull it off. No. Lenny Bruce is different. Lenny Bruce was just far better Lenny, at it. It's a bit like the difference between Arnold Schwarzenegger and Sylvester Stallone in, a fun, in an odd way. Stallone is a very fine actor. He's very, very bright man. I mean, Stallone is supposed to have an IQ up around, what, 140, 150, something like that. He's a scriptwriter, he's a producer, director. He, he he wrote and produced Rocky, which I think people think of when they reflexively is just a boxing movie, but it's actually, it's a really great film. And it's a fantastic performance. Schwarzenegger is Schwarzenegger, but the difference, Schwarzenegger is funny. It's not something that he thinks about it's it just he is funny and Stallone isn't and that's just one of those things in life Lenny Bruce as well as being all the other things is funny and you just laugh and I was listening I was listening to a reinterpretation and looking at a 
a piece that a very famous piece that Bruce did on the N word. It's in a club in New York, which and it is very very funny, but absolutely impossible to be imagine to imagine it being done today. He goes through. I don't know if you've ever seen it. He goes through all of the ethnic slurs that you would apply to a whole variety of ethnic groups: Irish, Jews, Italians, Hispanics, African Americans, all of them. You know, and he just goes through the audience, and then he hits the N word. Of course, that generates a certain energy and a response and tension, and he goes on and on. It's really funny, and interesting also. He also manages to make a really interesting and powerful political point, but. He's funny. And uh, that is uh, not. <laughs> on, on, the, on the comedy side of things, uh, the uh, video of Hillary Clinton having a grand old time as she uh, jokes. It was on, uh, the listeners probably seen it, but if not, what I'll actually do is I'll, I'll include the audio in this podcast just here. And then Michael and I will discuss it uh, this is the libya gaddafi thing yes this is the the libya gaddafi thing she's talking to cbs news and she is talking to them between interviews so i'm not i'm not even sure if she knows she's being recorded and um yeah I'll just we'll play here so i mean that is the land of unconfirmed yes we came we saw he died. <laughs> did it have anything to do with your visit? No, oh, I'm sure it did. We came, we saw he died. <laughs> kind of grotesque. It is kind of grotesque. And kind of a good example of why people, because Joe Biden appears to be more popular than Hillary Clinton ever was, despite the fact that Hillary Clinton uh, did politically probably significantly more than Joe Biden. But she is unlikable at a visceral level. And it's not because of, she's a woman. It's because she's No, like it's that. because she's a woman. Accept it. For God's sake. The, uh, what was the... If she loses again, she will blame it on... You know, if Biden wins, actually, she will almost certainly say that, well, she only lost due to misogyny. Uh, although I believe the comment you came up with the first time I mentioned that to you was... But Hillary Clinton is far more of a man than Joe Biden has ever been. <laughs> well, thanks, Gary. Yeah, you see, I'll, I'll just I'll put your own comments in for maximum yeah, effect. That's great. Well, of course, there is also the other the possibility that Joe Biden doesn't win and Donald Trump uh, wins, and it'll be interesting to see uh, how. Legitimate, she regards. Well, this is the thing. Hillary has said that um, if well, if Trump loses, he will, he will say that the election wasn't legitimate, and that that would be terribly destructive to uh, America. And it's a, I can't really take that point seriously from Democrats, Michael, anymore, because I remember before the two thousand and sixteen election, that was a line that was being heavily pushed and was heavily covered by American media that Donald Trump was too out there, and he would not accept the results of the election as legitimate. Uh, Hillary Clinton, during the week, by the way, said that Donald Trump knows he's not a legitimate president. Well, Hillary Clinton has been saying that since November the whatever. Uh, so we've had, we've had this, oh, well, he won't accept he's legitimate, and that'll be a crisis of American democracy. I sort of go, 
What do you think you've been doing for the last four years? I've heard a constant refrain from the Democratic Party of not legitimate, Russia, not Hashtag my president. But Gary, this is not news. They did this for four years after George W. Bush was his first term. Yeah, but at least with Bush they could say, well, it came down to a you know, a court decision and we can question that aspect of it. Yeah, but... At least you had something you, you could say. You, there is a keystone you could, to this. But it's worth remembering that in a number... Of, in some places afterwards, they did actually keep counting. And it didn't look like Bill was willing, even if... Or not Bill, sorry. Bill was gone. Had it been Bill, I'm sure Bill would have won. Uh, who did he look? Gore? Was it Gore? Gore he lost to the first time around. Yeah. Gore, yeah. yeah, that yeah. Gore, Al, Al wasn't winning, even if they did keep counting. But that didn't seem to interfere with the narrative. And we had four years of stole the presidency, coup d'etat. Didn't seem to actually have a great deal of effect on the health of the American body politic. In the invasion of Iraq did rather more to do damage that. But Hillary, you know, listen, she is a very modern person and one of the signs of, of modernity is the capacity to keep two contradictory ideas in your head at the same time. Every time I hear them say about legitimacy, all I can think is, and God, wouldn't that be terrible? Anyway, Hillary Clinton will never be president. <laughs> no, that is true. And that is some small consolation. Although, to be fair, I would have enjoyed the wars she would have started. And she would have probably started a fair few. Yeah, her her approach to... um, The thing about Libya as well, the thing about Gaddafi is... Like, if you look at, like, Henry Kissinger. Henry Kissinger. I like Henry Kissinger. Almost certainly a war criminal. I, that yeah. I accept. But he took things seriously, and he at least had a plan for things. He was doing things to achieve an objective that he thought could reasonably be achieved. The Obama administration just fucking killed Gaddafi. Destabilized Libya, it's now ruled by a variety of warlords, and in doing so largely led to the refugee issue that Europe saw later, mostly because the EU had quietly been buying Gaddafi off for years to make sure the refugees never got yeah. to us. And caused the rise of most of the populist and some openly racist parties in Europe. So she not only destabilised Libya, she managed to destabilise the EU. Yeah, I mean, we... By total Libya chance. Libya doesn't appear a whole lot on our news fronts these days. It's worth remembering... That I think a lot of people assume that ISIS is over, and Daniel Isil, ISIS dash, whatever you particularly want to call it, the thing, the caliphate in the Middle East. But the last place that does actually survive is in Libya, because Libya has become so fractured and destabilized. All right, if you right, if you want to go to some of the world's finest open air slave markets, Libya's Libya is the spot. Yeah. No, it was it was a it was a it was a good job well done. The they also, by the way, they managed to kill Gaddafi under a Security Council resolution that they willfully twisted out of shape, which meant that when it came to Syria, the uh, both Russia and China refused to give them any sort of resolution on it that they could actually implement in the way they wanted, 
because Russia and China simply went, well, we passed a resolution saying that you could defend civilians from Libyan army aggression, and you turned that into basically a countrywide bombing campaign, uh, striking any military target anywhere. So, no, you don't get to do anything in Syria. So they harmed themselves to kill a man who had been keeping that region of the world stable, Uh, while also being, you know, a torturing, murdering dictator. But weirdly enough, in international politics, sometimes they're the best option available. You say they harmed themselves. This, I suppose, to a degree, they harmed themselves. But they also, because of the failure to make any kind of an agreement regarding Syria, they also harmed and horribly harmed the lives of many thousands or more or millions of civilian Syrians who were left, uh, well... In, what Syria became, and still, well, Syria still is uh, that absolutely horrible, tragic situation there. Anyway, can we not talk? Can we stop talking about Clinton? I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of thinking now that having talking criticised the left for their obsession with uh, Trump, who at least still is president. You know, talking this much about Clinton, who is not going to be anything anymore. No, I, I, I. Here's the thing, that's we we talked about Clinton, slightly, but we mostly talked about the policy issues. Oh, of I Clinton. don't, I I don't doubt that, but I I know you're right. And the I killed Gaddafi thing is just funny, in a sort of oh, you think the problem is it's also woman. worth reflecting on that this was a policy carried out under the presidency of uh, Barack Obama, the the man who won the Nobel Peace Prize for being elected. to to the presidency of the United States and then went on and was involved in a fair degree of illegal violent activity against American citizens and drone assassinations, wars and destabilization across the world. But nobody seems to be willing to point that particular finger. But he, sp- he spoke very well. He spoke very well and he wore a suit very well. Apart from that tan suit problem. Yeah, the, the, the tan suit never bothered me. A lot of people had an issue no, it didn't bother me, but it bothered people, other people. Some people had a big problem. Like the only American presidents should only wear dark blue suits. You know, yeah, I think you could pull off the tan. Anyway, speaking, I'm gonna take I'm gonna take that line in isolation and sound clip it. What he could pull off the tan? No, it's just be Michael Michael talking about Barack Obama. He could pull <laughs> off the tan. You really want me just to be put up against a wall and either shot or stoned, don't you, Gary? Just I'm not finicky about the end result. As long as it's videos and put up on YouTube. For the people's And amusement. maybe for monetization, it could help gripped media. Mm. We are looking for monetization options. It could get something got something going is... viral would work, you know. You had some stuff you wanted to mention about well, Russia quickly. Michael Barry, our, our man, man in Russia. Russia. We'll, we'll probably have a chat with him maybe in the next week or so, more detail about this. It's not on the radar. It's not on anybody's radar at all for whatever reason. I mean, there are lots of things that are not on the radar, but Russia, a number of things are happening in Russia. It, it seems to be that the the numbers, in, the, the, the coronavirus numbers in, 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 in Russia are not great. Now, they are coming down. The graph is looking a bit more like the graph elsewhere rather than the United States where it came down and stopped and plateaued, but rather plateaued higher than where it should have been. 
But there is a belief that the Putin is to an extent doubling down on the, a vaccine. The uh, Russian army labs, the state labs, are pushing ahead super rapido with developing a vaccine. They're hopeful that they they will have one by the time winter hits. Now, Michael's comment on that was when I said, "Do you think they'll get one?" He said, "He said, well, if they do, I would. I'd rather have the AstraZeneca one, please, in a box wrapped in plastic with the seal and the sticker still on it. The sense that the faith that the people have in Russia regarding COVID, apparently, or not just COVID, but anything to do with the uh, the the great state, is fairly well unravelled." He was talking to. Uh, CEO of a large American company who was talking to the chief medical officer of another large multinational who said that as regards Corona anyway, he said the numbers coming out of Moscow are fairly reliable, but the numbers in the rest of the country are absolutely useless. Nobody really knows what is going on. But he was saying that there is a serious sense that something is happening, Gary. Now, uh, the the listener may or may not be aware that in the middle of the pandemic uh, there was a certain amount of relaxation of the rules in order to allow a referendum to go ahead, a referendum which has changed the constitution to allow Putin to stay in power for another 12 years. A sensible policy. A sensible policy, sensibly approved by the Russian people. Now, but there is... There are noises, there are rumours and rumblings, Gary, over in the Russian Far East. The bit that's called Eastern-Western Ukraine. I don't understand that, but that's what they call it. Anyway, it's in the Far East. Michael was saying that he's been talking to people about it, and apparently it is rather a serious thing. It's been taken now rather seriously by a lot of people in Moscow. He said the only thing is, because it's 11 time zones away, when the protests are happening, and there are big protests happening, uh, everybody in Moscow is in bed. So somehow it's not really happening, you know, because if you didn't see it on TV, it hasn't happened. Can you imagine living in a country that 11 time zones? Mm. That's a long way. Anyway, the uh, the curiosity said that he said, just recently there's a sense that there is at the heart of this apparently implacable state, which is both limited but at the same time massive, there is a, there's a wobble. People are talking about revolution. And not only about revolution, but maybe, maybe whispered that revolution might actually be the only option, that this may be what they have to do. I don't know, Gary, but jeepers, Russia doesn't have a great track record when it comes to revolutions, does it? Well, I mean, that depends what you mean by good. Effective. Well, in that a lot of people have traditionally died in them. Yeah. And, you know, if you think a revolution should actually change things, that's one thing. But if you believe a revolution is a way to get rid of a mass of very agitated young people and stabilize a society, Russian has been world class in revolution. And one of the sparks that is possibly going to contribute, or it is feared might contribute, 
to a coming conflagration in the east was that the uh, the governor of the uh, region in the Far East, uh, Sergei Furgel, was arrested and has been detained and replaced by a Kremlin appointee who's never lived in the place. Anyway, there were marches. It's the official numbers say in one march that there were 6,500 people. Then other people say it was actually 20,000. There was a march, I think, two days ago uh, in one of the cities, and they estimate there was around 90,000 to 100,000 people. So it's a real thing. We will see. We we wait with bated breath. I, I just, just curious that it's... This is a rather this is a rather serious story about a rather serious situation in a very serious country. The destabilization of which could have very serious consequences for the global economy and for our for ourselves and for our security here in Europe. Nobody seems to be talking about it. It's not really seem doesn't need to be interesting. Putin is just in the same way as that the orange man. There's a kind of an odd relationship with Putin in the in the Western media. Sometimes you use him as an example of just bad Russian czar, despot kind of thing. Other times it's almost as if to say he's wily and manipulative and skillful. And look how stupid Donald Trump is in his relationship with Putin. Putin is so good at this kind of thing. So there's almost like a kind of a backhanded mm compliment going on here. I mean, I, I, but, there are negative things about the Russian regime, absolutely. There's some very serious negative things about the Russian regime. But we focus on it to a degree that is odd, considering that it's like China. China has far more relevance to current affairs, is far more integrated into the world supply chain, it is far more economic pull, and it is now quite credibly accused of carrying out a genocide. Um, and we just sort of ignore that. I think, actually, this is the difference, I would say, between Russia and China. There's a video I saw. It was a Russian comedian put up a uh, giant portrait of Putin in a um, in an elevator. I'll see if I can find the video, and if I can, I'll link it in the thing. And put cameras in its eyes to see how people would react to seeing it when they were alone in an elevator. And it's just people taking the piss out of Putin and mocking him. And just like, what the fuck is this? What are they doing now? I have a feeling if you did that in China, you wouldn't get that response. Because it wouldn't be safe to give that response. That's true. And I think one of the interesting things Michael was saying, we might go back to it if I get to talk to him, is that one of the things about Russian society or Russians that you, you you don't get until you're there is that you, when you come initially as a Westerner you look at say the criminal justice system and the police and the judiciary and you think my god this is a draconian system the response to fairly minor crime is excessive and rather brutal then you say you live in the place for a few years and you realise you know what maybe the sense you're getting here is that unless you beat shit out of people you have absolutely no chance of getting them to do anything and one of the reasons why there has been this inverted commas relaxation of the of the state interventions regarding the regulation regarding covid is because you just can't get russians to do anything you know if you you can tell them i mean shall we say the last time that they actually did something in a concerted effort was the great patriotic war which they managed to do 
very well. But just uh, you you mentioned what we're not we're not talking about in, in China. Another story we're not talking about. We we got we we meant it was on the pages of the newspapers for a couple of days, and it's got and maybe it's because well what more are you going to say about it? But still, the odd comment you thought would be worthwhile when I'm going to read you a headline, Gary, which was published yesterday in the South China Post. Right, China India relations, Ladakh standoff need not be a prelude to war. I mean, that's not the most uplifting and optimistic of headlines, is it? No, I mean, I've I've written a bit on the issue uh, in Ladakh. I'm not sure if it's been covered. It's probably it's probably been covered, I think, by the Irish Times. The I have a fair idea of every journalist in Ireland who's talked to the Indian embassy about this, of which I believe there are three, because the uh, Indian embassy sent out a mailer where they had forgotten to hide the emails of the people it was going to. And it was, okay. I think it was me, one guy from the Irish Times, and either a second guy from the Irish Times or one guy from the Irish Independent. And that was it. That was, that was their, that is their press mailing list. That's not great. But no one gets The two largest shit, countries in the world. Both nuclear powers. Nuclear powers. I mean, that's kind of important. And this, and the hopeful statement is need not be a prelude to war. In other words, there are things we can do to avoid this. But otherwise, the sense you're getting from this headline is other, if we don't do certain things, India and China, as it says in the next line, these nuclear states and rivals could go to war. I, and that's something I think well, maybe uh, uh, we should be paying a little bit more attention to. It's actually it's, it's a fairly serious issue at the minute, partially because of what's happening in Ladakh, but also because the of the, the nature of the power relation between China and India. When they made a lot of their a lot of their deals come from around the seventies, a lot of how they treat each other are based on how things were at that period. And India has grown substantially more powerful since then, absolutely. But China has grown exponentially more powerful than it was since then. And they're now it looks like the Chinese are looking at a lot of those things and going, but we're no longer equal partners. So why do we have to do that? Yeah. Now, I would just make the observation. That's certainly true economically. Whether or not that's true militarily, the Indian army has a reasonable a reasonable hit rec- track record, you know? Yeah, I, the, the, I, I, the, the, the People's Republic, the army or the Great Army, whatever the, the, the old title used to be of the... Of the hasn't got the same kind of track record. No, if China I mean, if China wants to start swinging its military around the place in that region, they probably won't start with India. They'll start with somewhere smaller where there's far more of a power disparity. And they'll basically use that to trial how good their military actually is in a wartime situation because they've got some very advanced tech. They've got a lot of people they also have absolutely no idea how to actually perform in combat. Yeah, uh, and this is some, this was they, they had rather a shock when, for example, when they invaded uh, Vietnam. Rather a considerably smaller country, but with a very, very and at that stage very experienced, very good and very experienced army, 
and got their arses fairly badly kicked. And just one other little nugget to throw into the uh, the pot. All of this, which we we talked about when it happened, when it was going on, the first when the first mobilizations took place in what are what are called the high passes. Uh, but since then, just to make things even better, uh, China and now Pakistan are deploying troops ar- along the Ladakh Gilgit Balistan. Yeah, I, I think I think part of the issue here for reporting it is I I wrote a couple of pieces on it, and the history of that region, and the the contested nature of the border is quite it's quite complicated to explain and it's not something that you would assume the average reader knows anything about and so it becomes much more complicated to write stories about it because you also have to try and figure out how to explain uh like the border situation the the actual line um of actual control the lac um are you saying that journalists might be expected to give to explain and give information to a reading public about some important political issue. Yes. Yeah, Gosh, in, in which right. there is clearly a right and wrong answer. And it's something many journalists are just deeply uncomfortable with. But also, really? it also helps to know, for people to know that most journalists know basically nothing about what they're writing about. Some have specialities, but let's say you're, a, you're an international relations journalist or you're a politics journalist and you want to write about this. The chance of you knowing anything about this particular section of the world isn't that high. I mean, it's a well-known area in to certain people because of the fact that there was a war there, the, the 1962 uh, Sino-Indian War. But it is it is a mess. The, the, that entire region then, has been But Gary, then go and find mess. someone who does know about it and oh, ask, yeah. them, ask them questions. I mean, the, the reason I'm mentioning Pakistan because we all know uh, that... The relationships historically between India and Pakistan are fraught at best. The Indians are now saying that the Chinese officials are conducting meetings with Al Badr, which is a terrorist group, which and to try and ferment violence in Jammu and Kashmir, which are disputed territories in India, and that the China and Pakistan are again historically there was. Uh, warm relations between the attempt at warm relations between China and Pakistan and it that's not going to go down and well and the historical sectarian political and sectarian divisions with Pakistan it just seems to me are possibly another factor more making the incendiary this a more in, yet more incendiary situation particularly when you consider the political situation in India with the increasing national Increasing popularity of sort of India Hindu nationalist politics and government. I know. In, in I, I, India. I think we've I think we've talked about Ladakh on the podcast before, but it it's interesting to look at how the Indian newspapers are talking about this. There is no give in Indian media opinion, and therefore likely Indian public opinion, uh, either because the papers will represent the views of the people they sell to, which is largely what happens or because they will try and form the views of the people to those views. And either way, there is no give. Like They do not want to back down to China. Now, the Indian government, I think, is going to be 
substantially more aware of what happens if you don't back down. And no one really wants that, at least in India. But China is now, they're no longer, they no longer have the relationship they, they once had. The power politics have totally changed. And for all this peace and love and democratic peace theory that international relations has now largely descended into, power matters. And China is more powerful than India. So it can do a lot of what it wants. And India would struggle very much to stop it. Well, yeah, and let's, let's hope we don't ever get into a position where we, we see that situation clarified and resolved. I mean, China are actually being more aggressive on a number of fronts. They have the Ladakh situation as well, um, even towards Taiwan. They're pushing further on that. Um, there was an issue with China sinking um, Vietnamese fishing ships. Mm-hmm. Just their attitude to Hong Kong, I think, is the most blatant example. They've, they've taken Hong Kong. They, when they took it, they introduced fast. a law that gave them legal extraterritoriality, effectively, to the entire world. Anyone who says anything negative about China that could come under that law, the second you set foot on Hong Kong or China's territory, you can now be arrested. So it impacts, actually, on far more than Hong Kong. However, they are, they're throwing their weight around in, uh, in a quite aggressive fashion. Speaking of Hong Kong and local news, did you see the story about Nextopolis? I did. I. It was a weird story in that people... I, I hadn't... There was some there was some new information in it, but a lot of the information was actually talked about in the Hong Kong press. I'm not sure if, if any Irish journalists noticed it because it was in, um, it was in Mandarin, I believe. But uh, someone sent me the article a month or two ago. But they were saying that they openly said they'd been talking with Irish officials. Um, and I didn't chase it up because I assumed, uh, incorrectly it appears, that nothing had happened with it. Although I kind of get the sense the Department of Foreign Affairs was not actually interested in it. Well, we should expect that. Well, uh, insofar as I... I we, there's, uh, there are six, I think, is it five or six different sites being looked at as the location of some kind of an odd free trade quasi-autonomous post-Hong Kong city. Yeah, effectively Hong Kong, people in Hong Kong, there's a lot of people in Hong Kong who want to get out of Hong Kong now, either because they are aware that there's now going to be a great deal of political uh, repression, or because they're fairly sure they're going to be killed by the or tortured by the Chinese government, depending on how the Communist Party is feeling on any particular day. And so they want to, so they've been reaching out to con- uh, governments all over the world looking to set up what is called a charter city, which would effectively be you buy a large amount of land from a country. In this case, they're looking at about 500 square kilometers and you build effectively an independent city with its own laws and its own systems mm-hmm. on that land. It would effectively be like a, a Venetian sort of city state. Sure. Now, they've been reaching out to people all over the world, basically trying to effectively get a new homeland for Hong Kongers. It's got some quite substantial backers, but it's, it's, I mean, you're looking at something of such a scale and scope that the likelihood of it actually happening is, is minute. Mayo, nobody's using it. I think it would be, why, why not? I, can, yeah, you, can you imagine... The, I mean, talk about foreign direct investment. 
Mm. The, inf- the, the wealth creation, the employment. Gary, the Chinese food. Think how good the Chinese food. The, the raw hatred of communism. Fantastic. I oh, mean, good. you're talking about the establishment of a homeland. I would say straight off, don't look at the Middle East. Has been tried there, not working out brilliantly well. But you know, there's whole chunks of mail. It's, uh, it's I actually, I think just it's empty. Actually, I think it's actually an interesting idea, and it would be the sort of thing I would be broadly supportive of. However, I think in this case, politically and culturally, it couldn't be done. It would be it would be seen as selling Ireland to a group to which we have no real connection, and I think there would be a strong argument there. But I think for someone like Britain or America, it's certainly an idea worth. Uh, we're chasing up. And I think it would be very economically and probably culturally advantageous to any country that gets that, that allows that to go ahead. Well, but I think with Ireland, the problem is that there's no cultural link to Hong Kong. And so it's, it's not cultural really links so. to Hong Kong. Go on. Well, that's Cantonese, isn't it? Hong Kong is, can- is Cantonese. So uh, at least 60% of the Chinese restaurants in Ireland are Cantonese. I, 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 oh, actually, you're right. The, the article I saw would have been in Cantonese, not Mandarin, because it's Hong Kong. I think that uh, many, many Canton, uh, people in Hong Kong are Christians, and m- many people in Ireland are Christians. Uh, many people in Ireland speak English, and many people in Hong Kong speak English. We both have an English colonial history. I mean, I, it seems to be... The, the connections, the parallels are almost endless, Gary. We both love money. And yet that list ended very quickly. Well, I don't want to bore the listener with just listing things, Gary. That's not good radio. Again, Michael, it's better to deliberately bore the listener than inadvertently bore the listener. No, no, I, I, I disagree because it, that, that means that both the listener and I are bored, whereas otherwise it's just one. No, I... I, I, I... I actually quite like the idea of charter cities. I think they're a really interesting development. And I think it would be economically very good. Uh, One, we wouldn't ever do it because it would piss off China. Two, I don't think there's the cultural links. And three, there would be a perception. I think there's an actual strong argument that the selling of land for a a charter city is the selling of a country to a foreign group. And I can understand why people would be deeply unhappy with that idea. I just don't think they'd. I don't think they'd handle the weather. If your choice is the weather or the Communist Party of China, you'll probably uh, you'll probably take the weather. Yeah, but there are going to be other choices. I mean, Australia's big. I would have thought Australia had options there. Uh, Africa is big. Large bits of Africa are pretty. Sort of Do you know what's actually quite interesting? Spacey. Brazil, um, Brazil down the south. Pampas, very nice. The the interesting thing is that charter cities, depending on where they are, have taken on effectively none of the laws of the country they're in. Depends on where they are, but they're a big thing in um, in particularly Texas. Well, that doesn't surprise me. Texas has a, a lot of that sort of independenty kind of tradition, doesn't it? I mean, Texas was an independent state for for a little while. You can't have. They won't. They'll only allow cities to do it. You can't have like a, a district or an entire county. But as long as your city has a population over 5,000, you can uh, basically you can hold a referendum and put in place a city charter. 
and if it's um basically if it passes you're you're considered to have a particular type of status and you could pass any city ordinance that doesn't breach the texas constitution texas is big for that but the, the number of i think quite a few states particularly in the in the in the west uh you know in the old the old frontier states have that have that kind of thing do you remember i we'll, we won't get into this because we'll, we'll finish up i i do you remember there was a it was a big story at the time. There was an Indian guru who set up an ashram with many of what tended to be upper middle class and very wealthy followers. They practiced free love. That was one of the big things they, uh, as part of their spirituality. And they set up in a small town in, I have a notion it was somewhere like Oregon or somewhere like that. And they did basically what you described. They all signed on to the city rolls. They got uh, to be electors. They ran a referendum and they set up their own city. And it became, the locals were not happy because they basically turned it a little bit like a little independent statelet where they did it, everything according to uh, the needs and the desires of the guru or laterally the advisor to the guru. But it's mm-hmm. a fascinating story that anybody wants to go and look it up. But it, it these are the things that happen in the places like the United States, which are genuinely federal countries where people can do the kinds of things that we can't just imagine people, the government letting you away with in Europe. Not part of our cultural history. I mean, that's the other thing. The EU would probably just throw it like a child whose favourite toy was taken away from it. Yeah. I think, I mean, again, not getting into it. You're probably right on that. But I think the EU and all of us generally... We're getting to the point where we're going to have to start taking the whole Chinese thing a little bit more genuinely seriously rather than just throwing words at it. The um, I don't know if you saw the statement by Lord uh, Sachs, the former chief rabbi uh, in London there recently, where he said, you know, obviously from somebody as a, as a rabbi, as, as a Jew, when he sees pictures of thousands of people in uniforms, in restraints, shaved heads, about to be loaded onto trains to be taken away. It stirs up the kinds of memories and the kinds of horrors you hoped never to have to deal with again. And it seems to be, you you adverted to it earlier, Gary, we're looking at what is, if it's not actually happening, the preparation for a genuine old-fashioned genocide. there are several things they are doing that would push them under genocide, under the the strict definition of genocide as the destruction of of a people. Um, the only difference is there are what what are called wet and dry genocides, and a wet genocide is like concentration camps, but where the concentration camps move to extermination camps, or where you have like people with machetes, like blood, kind of wet. And dry genocide is just you know, sterilization, uh, destroying their culture, stuff like that. Just smi- minor stuff. The, the end result is the same, but you're willing to take a little bit more time to do it. Harvesting and, their organs for yeah, sale on the just, international market. So there's, there are several things they're doing that could fall under that. So if they're not doing any of those things... They're certainly doing enough to be questioned about it. And that that video, by the way, that's come out showing the hundreds of people uh, on the ground in uniform being loaded onto trains. Yes. That came out in about 2018. Yeah, there's... If you're 
you're looking at experts. It looks like it was actually an internal police video. Yeah. The police themselves took it and it was leaked to someone. Mm-hmm. That is two years old. Two years ago they were doing that. And things so have not got better since then. Things have gotten worse since then. And I did write to, I did ask the Chinese embassy to comment on the video. They refused to comment uh, to it on me. Sorry, they, they just didn't respond yeah. to, to messages. Um, they did talk to, I think, the Irish Times about it, mostly to to deny it was happening. I I think my favourite coverage of the uh, video has been the Babylon Bee, the right. American satirical oh, yes. site. Yes, I saw that. And what was it? It was... Uh, Z says Uyghurs being loaded on trains, being taken on surprise trip to Disneyland. It's black, but it is funny. Newsweek actually had an article um, during the week, and it was titled Xinyang Shows We Haven't Learned a Thing from Auschwitz. Like, that's... that's and that was from... Um, yeah. What's his name? Uh, Arsen Ostrovsky? He's... Um, he is the, I think he's the executive director of one of the Israeli, he's a human rights uh, lawyer anyway. Right. But uh, yeah, it's gotten to the point where people are at least talking about it somewhat. Well, when, you, when you have somebody as mainstream as Newsweek doing that, it's indicative of where the conversation has moved. Anyway, Gary, I suppose it's time to let the people off and enjoy their Sunday. Oh, actually, that um, that Babylon Bee part, do you know what the best part of the article was? Yeah. It was the ending where they just said that Disney agreed with what Z had said. Because <laughs> you know they would. There's money in it, Michael. Oh, God. Was there, like, the, the NBA was letting uh, people put slogans on the back of their um, of their shirts. Like BLM. The, yeah. Like BLM. And one of them got in a great deal of trouble because he wrote Free Hong Kong on it. And the NBA has quite a lot of business links with China, so that shit did not fly. Yeah, it's all right having, you know, protest and freedom of speech and their you know, their conscience and stuff as long as you don't get involved in you can say whatever you want about america and america yeah they might complain but they'll let you say it yeah whereas the chinese if you speak against the chinese they they have this carol schmidt the the chief juror of nazi germany is a big read in china he has been translated into chinese he is very influential there and one of Carol Schmidt's big thing was the idea of the friend-enemy distinction. And China has fully leaned into that. If you speak against China, you are an enemy. And they will just put the screws on you. So business won't go against China because China is willing to impose its will on them. Yeah, they have a good old, oh, Schopenhauer, Hegel, whatever you want. German will, old-fashioned German. There is, there is a great deal of just will to power, which yeah. America has lost. It would appear to have mislaid it at the moment anyway. So, on that cheerful note, uh, we will be back on Wednesday, all things permitting. Uh, Until then, I suppose, mind yourself, stay safe, relax and enjoy your weekend. And it's goodbye from me. Mm -hmm. And goodbye from me.